0: Welcome to the HR Lounge. Sit back and listen in as Diane and I interview HR professionals from all walks in life. We'll be exploring all things HR related. You know the ones, those deep and sometimes uncomfortable conversations that should take place but unfortunately never really happen. Enjoy your time with us in the HR Lounge.
1: Welcome to the HR Lounge. Today, we are speaking to the amazing Safia Boots, who is the director at Respect at Work. Welcome, Safia.
2: Thank you, Ryan
1: and Jacqueline.
0: Hi, Safia. Welcome.
1: I just wanted to give her just a brief overview of where we met. We met virtually via LinkedIn. And subsequently, you came to the RISE conference that I had created on 2019. And obviously it was a great event. One of the things that uh, stood out to me was when we presented, myself and Jacqueline presented our new programme for equality, diversity and inclusion we had designed ourselves. And one of the things you had said at the time was that you wondered how we would be perceived by the industry in terms of, of what we had just created. One of the things we had said was that the first thing they'd see is two black women. And once once they got over that shock, they would then review the content and recognise the content was valuable content and very innovative and would help the changes that were needed in the equality, diversity and inclusion space. And Jacqueline met you um, at the Life Conference. Is that right, Jacqueline?
0: Yes, yes. That was the first time um, I met you, Safia. And Diane said, when we presented Transforming Bias, change program you know what we noticed was there was a deep intake of breath because some of the content that we spoke about it was very much close to the knuckle but as as a consequence of all of that we we continued speaking with you and you invited diane and i to actually participate in a cipd event in milton Keynes, and you asked us to present so you know that was a great opportunity platform to network but also to see you know the cogs working in in the space that we're all in at that at that moment and presently
2: it was wonderful to see both of you launching a product and my reason for asking the question that i did was uh, really because our identities uh, can be both a strength but also can place limitations on us Uh, because of how others perceive us, as well as how we perceive ourselves. So it can be a strength and have limitations. Mm. Uh, And I was also conscious that it is quite rare to get two black female entrepreneurs trying to launch a a product and service, uh, because I was acutely aware of my own challenges in trying to scale up a product and services Mm. and systemize what essentially is our hard-won talents Mm. uh, that we've put a lot of emotional and intellectual energy Mm. into honing that through our lived experience because of our identity in working in exclusively Mm. white Mm. spaces and the reason that I was asking was that you were going to be moving into what I call social capital Mm. spaces Mm. in order to launch your product Mm. Um, And by social capital, I mean that unseen advantage that comes from having identity affirmation, Mm. from seeing people like yourselves scaling up and being recognised as both business people and technical subject matter experts Mm. in your area. That that twin combination Mm. means you've got to move into spaces like business networks that are elite by nature and exclusive, but there is a fine line between elitism and ex- exclusiveness with mm. inclusion.
1: Yeah, I think we were quite clear. We knew that there would be, to- you know, a lot of obstacles, um, but we Definitely. believed in what we had designed and developed, and you know, yeah. we're quite strong characters ourselves. That you know, we're quite confident. We want to work with people who want to work with us. If people see our yeah. colour as being a challenge yeah. for them, then that's their loss, not ours. And that's really how we see it. Yeah.
2: And, and that that's all you can can do. You, you have got to be robust uh, and have a certain level of uh, resilience. But I, I think it's just mm. a sad thing that it's necessary to have to build that resilience
1: yeah. or
2: yeah, an unnecessary social barrier.
1: Yeah, it's true. But unfortunately, that is yeah. life that uh, we are subsequently in at this moment so I want to ask you my first question really which is really to tell me how you got involved with workplace
2: investigations what what put you on that path what put me on that path was really a lifetime of um watching um how social interactions evolved and the opportunities that arise from them. Uh, And my own uh, story of being the uh, daughter of an unlettered uh, mother who didn't have the opportunity to go to school, be educated, to be able to read and write, and yet was an incredibly uh, knowledgeable um, and intelligent person uh and deeply compassionate uh, and it's seeing uh, how as a 10 year old i was acting as her interpreter to navigate white spaces um, and even to the point of when my father was um run over Uh, and being one of eight children, I had the best language ability. So she asked me to accompany her to knock on various factory doors because for the first time, she was gonna have to go out to work, whereas before she had eight children to bring up. Um, And uh, (coughs) now suddenly with my father not being able to to work. So I went with her knocking on factory doors and we kept getting turned away on site. And I was, found myself advocating in a very positive way towards her, saying, oh, look, my mum, you know, the sign on the factory would say sewing machine is wanted. Uh, and they would uh, t- close the door in our face. Uh, and I would try and advocate to say, look, the clothes I'm wearing, which happened to be Punjabi shalwar kameez, you know, traditional uh, Islamic uh, clothing. I mm. said, my mum made these, machined them. Uh, She cut the patterns and I I listed all her talents in how she had made them uh, and they weren't impressed. Uh, And so when the final door closed, I put my foot in the way (laughs) Uh, and I insisted on an explanation as to why they wouldn't consider her. So this one supervisor, white supervisor, she relented and she said, oh, well, she'll have to fill in an application form. And because I'd already dropped in that my mum couldn't read and write, but she was a brilliant machinist uh, and she could cut her own patterns. Uh, it was clearly designed as a criteria to stop, therefore, my mum having to fill it in. But I said, that's mm. no problem. I'm 10 and I can read and write because <laughs> i I'd, I'd come to the UK mm. at six and I learnt by the time in three months. To speak fluently and i was on well on my way by 10 to being able to write so i said i'll fill it in for her and my mum will sign the application form because my dad has shown her to at least sign her name mm. she knows how to do that that's that's the only writing she can do uh, but uh, she, she'll be able to do that and the lady said oh, no, that that won't be uh, possible to do that and tried to shut the door again. So I put my foot in and I said, why? Why can't I do that? And she said, oh, it's not me. It's personnel. <laughs>
0: Blame it on someone else.
2: Yeah, and I'm only 10 and this is in the late 60s. And I've never heard of who are these people called personnel? They must be so powerful that they can get in the way of my mum and my uh, progression, and so I walked away thinking. I explained it to my mum, and I said, "There's somebody called Personnel says you can't fill in the form yourself," uh, and she just accepted it. I accepted it. We walked off, but I never lost the sound of that word. Ooh. And by nineteen, a random occurrence of when I went knocking on doors uh, to find a job for myself. By then and I walked all the way from Forest Gate to Tottenham Court Road, knocking on factory doors and office doors and everybody turning away. And the final door I knocked on, they let me in. And uh, the lady at the recruitment agency, I still remember, was Rand Recruitment Agency next to Tottenham Court Road, pulled out of her index box uh, a a vacancy card, because obviously this is (laughs) pre-internet, That she mm. looked at it and she said, I've got just the job for you. I said, oh, what is it? She said, it's to work in personnel. Wow. <laughs> I know what that <laughs> is. I have, that. I have to get that job. I know that is going to make the difference to people's lives. So that's how I got into uh, HR uh, and why it was so important to me. Uh, And I wanted to understand, because I was curious as to why is it that some people progress in life and others don't. Uh, Mm. And and so that was my my mission from from the very beginning, was to understand how the world worked. And I thought I could do that through the world of work, because it's such a huge part of our lives. uh, And it opens doors to to other aspects of, of life, Uh, and and your interest and the means to explore them. Um, Mm. And so I went to work in the private sector. I started in the paper and manufacturing. I went then into IT. um, And then I was headhunted to uh, lead uh, on local pay and reward uh, in the NHS. So I joined the NHS uh, at a time when... um, the uh, NHS was broken up into separate employers and each employer had access Mm. therefore to their own um, payroll budgets uh, and terms and conditions. Uh, So it somewhat fragmented the national picture. They didn't have people leading on pay and reward. And so one of my early discoveries of doing that work and specialising in pay and reward having been a HR generalist, was to follow the money. I actually found that that's where I uncovered the issue of ethnicity pay gap, because I saw the evidence, because I had the data. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I started to therefore ask questions about it. And that got me more involved in being asked to hear um, grievances and start dealing with grievances um, Uh, And disciplinaries, because, again, I was noticing Black and Asian people were more disproportionately referred for disciplinaries. Um, uh, And there would be high turnover, but not very high turnover in terms of progression. So these were patterns that I was picking up as a rare uh, person um, uh, that was non-white in what was an exclusively white and predominantly female occupation, mm. um, and that does. When you're an outsider or a space invader, as I like to uh, uh, recall the the expression that was that was created by an academic, um, is you see things um, from another perspective. You see the real culture between policy and practice when you have to ask for identity affirmation. Yeah. It's only at that point that you collide with the actual reality of the culture in which you're operating, because everybody else takes identity affirmation for granted. So I wanted to understand why what is it that HR uh, and various elite professions were doing to replicate homogeneity in organizations because these things do not happen by accident of course not yeah there's a socialization process that creates affinity bias um and it's about understanding so it's it's the area that, that you're working in in terms of understanding how biases evolve um and <clears throat> I always, one of my aspects of being in in journalists, HR, and then moving into pay and reward was there was a constant pull from within the organisation, as well as every time I came to change jobs and the recruitment agencies would keep trying to uh, direct me towards uh, doing uh, equal opportunity uh, jobs where you're the Equal Opportunities Officer, which later, obviously, the terminology changed to EDI um, uh, and diversity and inclusion. But at the time of the 80s and 90s, it was called Equal Opportunities because it was a very compliance tick box, uh, risk averse uh, approach uh, to equality. Yeah. And I always resisted uh, going down that narrow route because I said I need to be where the decisions are being made Mm. about pay about recruitment about promotion about development if I put myself in the specialist EO area I won't be involved in those decisions Mm. I won't be able to make a difference so I always resisted that I said it has to be woven into the decision making you don't separate it out Uh, and and that kept me out of being the organization's EDI because I recognized that's where all the brown people sat. Mm. They were marginalized in the in the equal opportunities department. Right.
0: Right.
2: It was it was almost a form of ghettoizing and, and racial segregation within the profession. And I saw that and that's why I stayed where I was to try and really hone my skills of investigation Mm. by being curious, by asking questions, following the evidence trail uh, and the leads. And that's how I I developed the insights that I did. So that by the time uh, I came to uh, having been, um, uh, you know, ejected from several organizations and not progressing, And I won't go into those scenarios now. Um, By 2001, I had, or 2000, I had the opportunity to apply to be an employment tribunal panel member. Um, Because I thought, well, I've got this inside knowledge about how organizations actually work versus what their rhetoric says they work. Mm. I can use that to provide and be part of um, enacting um, justice.
0: Yeah, oh, that's fantastic. Safia. can I just jump in and ask you about your journey? Because um, what I'm hearing is a fantastic story and your lived experience. Now, I believe, and this is from my perspective, that everything that you've gone through has led you to where you are now with the investigations. Yes. I think, um, and your footsteps were certainly ordered in this respect, um, and you've evolved. Yes. Has, has your experience helped to enhance... Um, your work that you do around investigations because of the knowledge and understanding and grounding in all the other areas that you actually worked in, experienced, and passed through to move on to something bigger and better.
2: Well it's it's given me a far more uh, rigorous analytical approach. Um, I'm uh, more determined and dogged. I suppose I don't give up mm-hmm. once I've got the bit between my teeth. I pursue an inquiry to a conclusion. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, I don't take things at face value, so I'm naturally sceptical mm-hmm. uh, and questioning. Um, I actually like it when people are uh, are doubtful because I think doubt is a good thing. Mm-hmm. I think certainty um, makes you narrow-minded because you perceive your particular uh, or people like yourself as having only one truth. Mm. Whereas when you doubt, it means you're curious to know more. Right, yeah. You're curious to explore. It's like a thread that's hanging there. You want to pull it and you want to see where it leads you. And I'm that person. You know, I don't leave any stone unturned. And I suppose that's one of the features of being an investigator.
0: Yeah, it's a brilliant quality.
1: Right, well, I would say that um, you're quite a thorough person. Your thoroughness is what is going to help people to get the justice that they need. Mm. Which brings me quite nicely to um, my, my other question, which would be to what do you think HR needs to do to improve their approach
2: to conflict at work? Um, I think they need to really examine their own role in it Uh, because we, none of us exist in a vacuum and there is a perception as if HR sits outside of the conflict when in fact, Mm. it's actually part of facilitating it. Mm. And that might sound harsh, but it's about understanding your place in a structure and in a system and hr definitely has a place in that system and the structural inequalities that are created through work yeah because through work it affects our income it affects our sense of identity and sense of belonging uh, and notions uh, of justice in the workplace organizational justice and all of the actors in that space play a part. They create the rules, Mm. they create the policies, they enact the policies because of their own identity, Mm. which has both strengths and limitations. Mm. And therefore to examine the issue of conflict and how it can be resolved, you have to first understand how is it created yeah. Mm. You cannot move to point two, which is solution, if you have not examined the problem mm. and accept that there is a problem to be fixed. And that's the nature, for instance, of institutional racism. Right? How can you mm. fix something that you cannot see and you cannot acknowledge that's exi- that exists? Mm. And your part in uh, uh, the modern day racism, as I call nice racism. Mm. is a much more insidious form, Uh, and HR uh, is very much embedded in it. It does not occupy a moral high ground that sits above it.
1: No, Mm. I've always said that there are two types of HR. There's the HR that just does the organisation's bidding, Mm. and then there's the other HR who actually care and are concerned about the situations that occur within the organization. And I just think there are not enough of those types of HR around, hence why we're getting all these issues. Mm. And also, as a qualified mediator, I find they, there is this run to go through the process and kick people out rather than talking and, and dealing with the issue mm. and trying to get some sense of stability within an organization. Mm. And, you know, that also makes me think, you know, I don't really get that. Mm.
2: Well, it's, it's back, back to HR sort of wanting and being brought, brought in to the uh, agenda that says you have to culturally fit in. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. You know, cult, culture basically eats strategy for breakfast mm-hmm. mm. because that what they should be asking is, what values and differences haven't we got in our culture that actually we need, as opposed to saying others need to fit in with what's already there, because mm. that's what fit in. It, it's a demand that you shoehorn into what's already there, rather than you coming in may actually change it. Mm. And sometimes you're told, oh yes, we want people who are uh, challenging change agents, but actually, change doesn't come from a place of comfort. It comes from discomfort. Absolutely. So, as soon as somebody that is different from the norm that's already there comes in and starts asking the questions, because they've been told, oh, yes, we do want to change. We do want to become sustainable uh, organizations. But as soon as you do start uh, to actually challenge the status quo in order to change it and identify what it is doing, to replicate itself that is anti-change, that's when you butt up against the real culture. And the culture therefore eats the strategy that is being espoused as being pursued, but in practice it's the culture that determines what is pursued, how and at what pace. And that's why change happens at glacial space. Mm.
0: I mean, there are so many, thanks for that, Safia. There are so many challenges within the HR arena that keep popping up and there are loads of buzzwords to keep pressing it down. What would you say is the most challenging of the issues within the HR space at this present moment of time?
2: Well, I think um, one of the the key uh, challenges uh, has uh, been brought home to us is th- the, the issue that's, that's, c- that's come about from um, COVID. Mm. Uh, it has uh, raised the issue of deeply, um, deep inequalities, and it's exposed them. Mm. Uh, and It's done that in the context of, of COVID and the health effects and the disproportionate impact mm. on Black and Asian communities. Uh, as well as working class, you yeah, know, and black people are working cl- class predominantly, mm. yeah. but the term is often used uh, to separate out the working class on racial grounds, mm. and to use the term white working class, right, in order to separate out the the white when actually they have more in common with the with the minoritized uh, groups. Uh, including people with disabilities. Mm. Um, And it's that lack of intersectionality lens that is missing uh, from the uh, HR view of the world of work that means uh, that the interventions are simplistic and therefore don't deliver measurable and sustainable um, results For more people, you get a few exceptions that rise, but the exceptional people um, don't Mm. make the rule. And in fact, focusing on exceptionalism means it makes it harder to tolerate those that can't perform at that level day in, day out. The, The enormous pressure to be the elite black person who is everything and everyone And represents all races when you're the first Mm. the only or the last of your kind in an elite space
0: yeah it's tiring it's wearying. it's soul destroying in in many aspects being the only black person and the bar is set so high for you to jump through that the people that set the bar can't even achieve it themselves and that makes it even more soul destroying exactly
2: yeah so, so I think for HR, they, they need to be analysing and auditing their policies and practices, mm. linking it to the, the broader CSR agenda of improving working lives in measurable ways. Yeah. That's where they will add greater value, but that is naturally also going to bring them into conflict mm. with other powerful Leaders, and and it's interesting, isn't it, that we have a predominantly white leadership um, engaging with a predominantly um, white HR function. Mm. The dynamic of that is reinforcing, yeah. And there's little research Mm. done on that relationship Mm. with bringing in gender and intersectionality of race. Mm and the homogeneity factor into it. Yeah, it's very true. It's very true. You've
1: obviously had um, a long career. Is there any bit that you can think of that you feel like you've made a massive change? You you know, it might be an individual that you've changed their lives because of getting involved with an issue that they had, or it might be an organisational change. Is there anything specific that you feel that i remember when i did and
2: i'm really proud of it um i think what one of the, uh, the 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 questions uh that hr need to grapple with is about getting people back to work uh and listening to what people are saying for instance that 37 percent of people don't want to return to business as usual mm. they want to reinvent <laughs> workplace uh, and what's been interesting is that black and asian people in particular don't want to go back to business as usual and particularly not to those white spaces in the way they were being managed Mm. Uh, if you look how many people are coming out to say they're no longer going to code switch that they're they're going to dress that reflects their heritage their religious values Or their uh, sexual orientation, however well they want, way they want to display uh, their identity in its full roundness, more people are doing that. So, issues around dress codes and what's acceptable and what your definition of professional looks like. Mm -hmm. All of that is being challenged. And it's been quite liberating for people to say, actually, I'm now X, Y, Z and in my own situation, I turned 60 um, and I I've thought, do you know what? I'm not going to hide that I am Muslim. And I had started last year during COVID to wear my hijab and my head wrap as some of my African uh, uh, friends and, and colleagues say that they really like it when they see that. Uh, and it's encouraged them to, to dress as they want to and they feel comfortable rather than everything having to fit the Eurocentric mm. notion of attractiveness uh, and style. Uh, and I've loved the African prints. I've loved the art. So I've embraced all of that. Uh, and I've brought it into my workspace because I've got now control over my workspace in a sense. Mm. And, and that's been one of the benefits of of COVID, <laughs>
0: I think, I think there's many benefits. I mean, for me, and Diane and I have spoken about it so many times, from where we walk through the door of 2019 into 2020, everything changed. But what it did as well is those spaces where things were hidden and under the surface, they've risen to the surface, they've been amplified, other unsavory things have been duplicated, yes. amplified. But it's also highlighted the fact that people now are using their voices. Now, I've got a question for you, Safia, because you have such a cornucopia of skills, knowledge, experience. You know, I know you're planning to write a book soon. Could you give us an idea of what it will be about? Just a little tidbit.
2: What what I want to focus on is um, try and share The learnings that I've um, obtained, um, as well as the learnings that others that I've interacted with have have, uh, gleaned from the literally the hundreds of investigations that I've done into discrimination. Mm. uh, And the three recurring themes of those discrimination elements have been around uh, the intersectionality of race, gender and disability. They've come up the most. Mm. Um, Mm. And what the organization's reaction is when people raise those matters uh, and how they deal with it. Um, And there have been some good examples, but there have been, sadly, more bad examples Mm. uh, of the response to those. And I've seen how uh, individuals, uh, when they come up against the system, um, how marginalized they become. And so they need help in navigating that space, Mm -hmm. as well as the individuals on the receiving end of those allegations, Mm -hmm. uh, also uh, react in a particular way to such feedback they're ill prepared to receive it because there is a sense of um innocence that is presented Mm. that says look we've got these policies we've got these procedures it says we don't do this nasty stuff but there is a dark side to organizational culture and behavior Mm. um and so i want to be able to Look, examine those from the different perspectives mm. of the HR, the unions, uh, the line managers, the complainants, the bystanders. Mm. Yeah. You say, I didn't see anything. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, I didn't speak up. Uh, so so you, you see the little um, characters that I've got here, the, the three wise monkey where I see no evil, I hear no evil, I speak no evil. Yeah. Mm. at one level that sounds like good advice but at another it epitomizes bystander behavior mm. to to deny the reality uh of the lived experience of a culture mm. that says i'm innocent because i'm not saying anything i'm not doing but in fact by your silence you have actually taken the position alongside the people who do the perpetrating of these bad hacks absolutely absolutely
0: well it'll be interesting to see when you've written it when it comes out i'll be one of the first with diane to to order it (laughs) and read it So, so
2: so so what i'm going to be doing is reaching out i need to write my my book proposal and then start to write down my research um plan Um, I have the um, help of my um, husband, Jeff, whom you have met, uh, because you know that I I am in a dual heritage marriage Mm -hmm. uh, of uh, 37 years, uh, and he uh, is um, a genuine um, white ally. Mm -hmm. Um, I wouldn't have, have got into HR if it hadn't been into uh, for him actually believing in me Mm. uh, and giving me my first job in HR. Wow. Um, And uh, it's been a journey for him to actually have the insights and COVID, and him seeing just how on a daily basis, I face uh, racism, literally on a daily basis. Mm it's been exposed to him more during Covid because work has come into the home. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's witnessed it. And so is my, you know, 92 year old uh, white mother-in-law. So they've seen it firsthand and they've been quite shocked at how much I have to actually uh, cope with. And so it's brought me into one other aspect of my book, which is Understanding racial trauma Mm. and the effect it has not only on the psychology but the semantic physical embodiment of racism Mm. on your body. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Mm. And discovering that the body keeps count, it keeps score. Mm. Uh, And there's an accumulative effect uh, of. Racism uh, that actually leaves a mark on the body in terms of inflammation uh, that occurs randomly the, uh, um, when you're under stress mm. fo- following a racial incident. Mm. Um, so those are the themes that I also want to to cover, mm. because serving on the Employment Tribunal, there is something called the Vento Guidelines, which put injury to feelings in three particular bands of low, medium, and high. But there's very little and no guidance about assessing it in relation to racial trauma mm. and the effect particularly when you don't have within the NHS, you'll have, for instance, a a Burns unit Mm. that will specialise in in that. You'll have various other specialist units, but I don't think there's one for racial healing, a racial trauma unit. Uh, And you can't, for love nor money, find uh, Black and Asian therapists. Mm. They're only just starting to form together to provide that healing, um, uh, and um, trying to actually share their learning and get the funding Mm. to provide that support. Mm. So we've had huge um, developments in being able to talk more openly about mental health, Mm. and you've seen that. There's a whole host of of hashtags about mental health, which is a, a wonderful Uh, development from a social point of view but when you look at who talks about mental health very rarely do those professionals use images of black and asian people Mm. in mental health yeah it's always a white person and the list of all the 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 causes that lead to mental ill health like divorce or separation or some other trauma you won't see racial trauma listed mm. and the number of mental health uh specialists and advisors who approach me to say "Well, oh, can we come to the cipd and do a talk about mental health yeah and i asked them one simple question will you be covering racial healing and racial trauma as part of a, a mental health effect they say oh no haven't heard of that mm. don't know anything about that yeah
1: we need to put you in touch with um, uh, Esther. Oh, yes. Esther Amar. She, she specialises in yeah. racial trauma. I'm going to ask you
2: the uh, final question, which is what's next for you, Safia? So next, next for me is to find kinder spaces uh, to hang out in where I have a greater sense of belonging. And I can work with people where I am celebrated rather than tolerated. Yeah. So I want to take some respite because it has been quite weathering the nature of the work that I do. Um, so I, I need to take more than just a, a snatched week here and there mm. um, and really rest up and reflect gather my uh, thoughts together for the book because I feel that that would be my legacy Mm. because I can't keep carrying on doing the investigations. I need to create an accredited Mm programme for, particularly for race investigations Mm. uh, so that others can uh, deliver uh, after me because I don't think this is going to go away. Oh, God, mm,
1: no. Many times. No.
2: so although we've had you know for instance uh, uh you know an a, excellent report uh published by the Middlesex university um by uh, professor roger klein on the 8 point action plan mm-hmm. uh i found it quite interesting uh that he was arguing we ditch uh the need to do investigations and Explore uh, these issues and put it into prevention instead. Mm. Now, prevention is is jam tomorrow. Mm. What do you do about today? Yeah, I, I yeah. would
0: say
1: that both is, both are needed. Yes, definitely, definitely. And what they do need to do is look at how they do it.
2: Yeah, because a day doesn't go past. My phone doesn't ring, or somebody contacts me via LinkedIn um, uh, or sends me an email. Uh, saying they're going through their grievance and could they have help with it. Mm. Uh, and have I have, have yeah. yeah and I have traditionally sought out private clients to do work with. They've found me or been referred to me mm. because I I've always believed it's it's the corporate organization that should pay for my services. Mm. Uh, of course. They should commission uh the independent investigation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Um, And the employees should be represented by effective trade union uh, Mm. officials. But what the feedback that I'm getting is they're not getting that. Mm. Um, And they're not getting the lawyers either because Mm. the lawyers are chasing the corporate work Mm. to defend the indefensible. And that's what was the reason I set up Respect at Work was one year after serving on the employment tribunal, and seeing the flaws that were built in Mm. so that they stood very little chance of winning. Mm. And and that's why only 1% of cases, uh, of 1% of individuals who have uh, experienced race, um, racial discrimination um, with its intersectionality with with gender and um, pay and disability, Mm. only 1% actually,
1: raise claims yeah and that's also to do with the traumatic nature of doing it um because a lot of organizations just drag it out and to make you feel that you have to keep producing information keep doing this keep doing that and you know i've all when i'm speaking to people always ask you know are are you ready for the challenge because it is going to be a challenge to deal with it and it's going to take all all that you can muster to Get to a point yeah. where you're you're putting evidence down on paper with a view to mm, you know yes. maybe going to a tribunal if that's where you want to go. And
2: and that's why sometimes we have to help people make yeah. a decision about exactly. what's right for them. Yeah. Walking away exactly. sometimes uh, is actually better. exactly uh, Yeah. And put your energy into that. Mm. Uh, and and getting people comfortable that that doesn't mean you you've no. given up mm. yeah uh, it doesn't mean you've conceded that you don't have a case it's mm. about protecting your physical yeah, and mental exactly. health
0: absolutely absolutely and it goes back to the racial healing because there are so many fractured people that I know you know both Diane and I have been approached by individuals who are going through bullying and harassment who've gone through bullying and harassment and you yeah. lose yourself you lose yourself you lose your identity and many of them now as they've as they've walked away they've realized from the outside looking in how much trauma they had to endure on a daily basis and as you talked about the effects on the body You know, when you've contained it and you've got nobody inside, it's like you being on a planet and you're the only person on this planet that can see all of these things. Everybody else is just walking by doing their own stuff. And it's, it's, it's a lonely road to travel. So the racial healing aspect is something that people want, they seek, they will gravitate to if there is a platform, if there is a presence, of individuals who understand from their lived experience perspective, because, you know, I'm not going to argue with anybody about their experience. You can read books, you can do training, all of that. What you do with all of that is what will make the difference, but you cannot see things from our perspective. When I say our, that's people that have gone through this trauma who've got the lived experience, but we're excluded from creating these platforms these products yeah. that will help to enhance yeah. the healing promote it and get people through the other side Yeah, you
2: know? and that's why you can't change what is essentially a systemic mm. uh, problem through individual mm. acts yeah. it takes mm. too long yeah you can't have it through one-to-one conversations mm. Mm. and raise awareness of bias etc it lasts literally five minutes you have to change exactly. the system yeah. because a systemic problem needs a systemic uh collective yeah. approach and you can't do that from the inside and that's no. the sad truth that I've I've come to that actually you have to stand outside mm. and therefore what the what it needs is a collective movement a civil rights movement yeah is That is going to really make any dramatic change, Mm. and that's what. Because none of the 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 acts. I mean, if you think about the Race Relations Act, uh, it didn't come about uh, over a cup of tea and asking nicely. Mm. It came about from the Bristol boycott of the 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 Bristol bus company. Yeah, put a sign up saying, you know, uh, that that they wouldn't employ uh, any black uh, drivers. Yeah. Uh, and you know the rest is, is mm. history. Mm. Uh, it then led to the Race Relations Act, uh, and which then went through several rewrites. Uh, and just because we got the legislation doesn't mean that racism disappeared. Exactly. Yeah. It just went underground. The
1: yeah. um, Equality and Human Rights Committee, they put something out on Twitter saying the Equality Act 2010 is there to protect us from race and disability, blah, blah, blah. And my response was... It, 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 it might it might have been put there to no, do that, no. but it doesn't actually do
2: that. It's there in theory. Mm. It's there in theory, like most pieces of legislation, mm. you have to enforce a right. It may be that stated as a right, but enforcing it is another matter. You mm. have to have funds, you have to have knowledge, you have to have representation, you have to have resilience. Mm. Yeah, exactly. To actually enforce those rights. Mm. Um, and and the the law wasn't written. I mean, most people don't bring the claim within three months, which is one of the uh, tenets of it. Mm. Uh, they have to bring it as a continuing act mm. and show a, an ongoing causal link.
1: Mm. Exactly. Well, I think we've come to the the period where I'm going to have to say to you, thank Sophia. You. Thank you very much for coming. To the HR lounge. All the information that you provide has been really, really um, helpful and very thought-provoking, very thought-provoking. So uh, on my behalf, I'll say thank you very much. And uh, Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much,
0: Safia. Everything that you have broken down, bite-sized chunks, you know, I'm sure the listeners will be in contact, even though you're going to be taking respite, because what you, the knowledge that you have is very much needed in the wider arena for people to tap into, to understand, and to move forward with. So, thank you very much for joining us in the HR Lounge and sharing your experience.
1: Thank you for listening to the HR Lounge. We hope you find our podcast insightful. Join us next time for more thoughtful
2: discussion. And remember, you have the power to make a difference.